Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode 50 Years of Greece, Part 2. My guests today are Greece's original producer, Ken Waisman, and original director, Tom Moore, and this is the second part of our recent conversation. If you missed part one, you may want to catch up on that before listening to this one. This week marks the 50th anniversary of Greece's move from the Eden Theater, way down on the Lower East Side of New York, to the Broadhurst, the first of three Broadway theaters Greece would play during its record-breaking eight-year run. And, in fact, on June 5th, just a few days after I spoke with them, Ken and Tom hosted an anniversary party at Sardi's where they and the original cast had celebrated the show's opening back in 1972. Greece alumni attending that event included co-writer Jim Jacobs, choreographer Patricia Birch, and performers Mary Lou Henner, Judy Kay, Jerry Zachs, Carol Demas, Ray DeMattis, Eileen Graff, Barry Bostwick via Zoom, and many, many more. And all of them also contributed their memories to the new book, Greece, Tell Me More, Tell Me More, stories from the Broadway phenomenon that started it all. I've been collecting photos and some amazing videos of that event, as well as the two recent Greece reunion shows at 54 Below in my Broadway Nation Facebook group, where I invite you to join me and more than 2,000 other fans of this podcast who probably, much like you, are hooked on Broadway musicals. Today, you'll hear some fascinating stories about the development of the show, including how Ken and Tom worked with the show's authors to trim the original phone book-sized script down to a manageable size, added some now-classic hit songs to the score, and how they all survived a disastrous first preview and then were able to rework and revamp the show in just three weeks. And even though at that time Ken was the youngest producer on Broadway, you'll hear how he masterminded some old-school-style producing tricks that helped turn a near-flop into one of the most successful musicals of all time. And many of you will be especially interested in the stories of how he had to wheel and deal with the Schuberts and the Nederlanders and then go head-to-head with the abominable showman himself, legendary producer David Merrick. Here we go. 
Talk a little bit about the development of the script during this period. As you said, Ken, it was 70% dialogue in the original production. Right. Originally, they gave me a script, and I took it with me. When I left Phil and Susie, my friend from Baltimore, they were waiting for me, of course, through this whole meeting. And then I walked out with a script to Jim and Warren, and Susie, his wife, said, what did they do to give you, a telephone book? And Danny and Sandy were part of the ensemble, but they didn't stand out in any way. And so the first thing that I did when Jim and Warren moved was we sat down and I pointed out, you could tell if you read between the lines, Danny and Sandy really should be the major characters. And actually, if you're talking uh, from a technical structure, Sandy is the lead character in Greece because she's the one that goes through the big change. So that was the major shift. So I pointed that out. We started working. They needed an introductory song. So they wrote Summer Nights. They had had a monster mash type song for the high school prom, which was like a boom, boom. I said, no, 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 we need a showstopper there and Pat can give it to us. Jim calls me the next morning and he sings to me over the phone, Born to Handshot. Before I was born late one night, my papa said everything's all right. The doctor left Molly down with a stomach pouncing all I said, wow, yeah, pack and work with that. That'll be a showstopper. Born to hand jab, baby. I said, born to hand jab, baby. Oh, yeah. Here we go. By the way, another talented pet, she choreographs off of the character in the show rather than steps. And she did a great job with the prom scene doing that. And so this back and forth was going on until we we had a kind of script draft. I say kind of because it was still overlong and everything else. But I felt we could show this to a director because if you show it too early, my experience and how Abbott talked to George Abbott, who I apprenticed for my experience was if you go in too soon with not enough on paper, the director's instincts are visual. So sometimes there's things that need to be dealt with. You need to put on paper first. I said, this will work. We can start with the directors. Uh, and is that the script that you saw, Tom, first? Though? Yeah. Ken, Ken in particular had already really done quite a bit of work with them in terms of getting rid of things. But it was still a phone book and it was still 70%. But some of the songs, I mean, the most classic one is that replacement Summer Nights because that's really Ken having pushed them to do something. It turned colder, that's where it ends. So I told her we'd still be friends. Then we made our true love Wonder what she's doing now. Summer dreams ripped at the seams. But signature of song. But one of the reasons I know they hired me is because I knew about script and I knew how to work with authors. There was a month while we were auditioning the original cast. And while that was happening at night, the authors and I would meet in Jim Jacobs' apartment and we would work through the script. And they were remarkably adaptable. It was painful for them. And it's one of the things I talk to people a lot. This critic at the London Telegraph said, so you may be the first one that started softening their material. 
And I had never thought about that way. We were trying for a documentary approach. In fact, I did soften it because, and it's one of the things that was part of my deal, part of my being hired, was to make them likable so that you like these characters. And I'm bringing this up just because Jim and Warren, it would be painful them to watch some of these characters who were so tough to be softened because he knew these guys. And there would be moments they felt we were ruining their show. In those days, Jim used to, whenever he'd get upset, he'd say, I'm going to punch him out. Nobody ever took it particularly seriously, but it really went up until he was going to punch out Clive Barnes after his first review. (laughs) But they did it. They were adaptable. And if you had good reasons and you showed them why it worked, they did it. And was always with the understanding, which I always do with writers, if this doesn't work and you want to try something, we'll definitely try it. But I was (laughs) looking at a picture in the book because we just got copies of the printed book. There's a picture of the bum scene and the quote underneath it, the late unlamented bum scene because just a terrible scene. But it was a fragment of what was left from a real moment, which was really spelled out in their script, which was not a bad scene at all. But it just stopped the momentum. I mean, your job as a director in a musical is to get to the next musical number as quickly and expeditiously as possible, because that's what people are thriving on. And that's the engine of the piece. That's what's making it run. We did that. And when we finished, we all thought we had a really good script, that we had gotten it down and really honed rehearsals we still thought we had a really good script but there were clearly problems and we can both speak to this because i considered this is when greece got made it was in the preview period because when we opened up downtown in the eden and audiences first saw it it turns out it was not quite what we thought it was and that's true of most shows if you've done your homework correctly which thank god we evidently did you can deal with the surprises you are definitely going to get A lot of people take that to mean, oh, we'll figure it all out and prove it. Well, if you don't have a strong plan beforehand, you're not going to know what you're trying. It's much like a kid growing up. If they don't have a strong background in the way they're brought up, they're not going to know what they're breaking away from. But we knew what we had to change. And it just became, as Ken corrected me on this, and it got changed in the book. But I said, the audience will tell us what to do. And he said, no, no, they don't tell you what to do. They tell you where something's wrong, but they have no idea what to do. And I think that's true. You just can see them. You can see audiences, and I, I love watching it in previews. You can see audiences just pull back. They don't feel confident anymore. And so then you have to work twice as hard. And that's three weeks because it was an extraordinarily short time to transform an entire musical. That's one of the most exciting three weeks of my life without question. And we were young. So those cylinders were firing really fast. But, you know, that was not an unusual process in those days. We did not go out of town. We were at a time when some shows decided to do all their previews in New York. And economically, coming from off-Broadway, you didn't go out of town. Charlie Brown, all those hits did their previews in New York and worked. Or you did go out of town. And then there were the meetings every night in the producer's suite. And George Abbott, when I worked for him, he had said to me, the only one who's going to have complete, or should, because that's his job, have complete objectivity to whatever degree possible, Uh, when you start with public audiences, is the producer. Because by then, he said, the director is totally focused on the actors, their performances, the stage pictures. The costume designer has decided the entire budget's just for costumes. The one who is out there with the audience every night and getting a picture, you know, is supposed to be the producer. That doesn't mean that I could, when we had those meetings every night, that I could turn around and say, the audience didn't like it because. But I could say, you know what? We lost them. We need to think about this. 
Something was empty about Danny's and Sandy's relationship. I mentioned it, but something's missing. Tom came up with a solution. They needed another scene together. And thus came the scene outside at the athletic field with Patty and Danny and Sandy. You know, I've thought about that a lot since the book. You know what amazes me? is that that wasn't clear when we were working on the script and it wasn't clear when we were in rehearsal because that is a profound difference because you always felt that Danny and Sandy weren't developed, but somehow we missed the fact that you saw them once, they weren't connecting, and the next time you saw them, you were at the drive-in. It makes no sense whatsoever. But as soon as you realize those things, I think what the producer does, and I don't think there are a lot of producers that do this, by the way, but they do have an objectivity that you don't have because as a director, you have to stay focused in. But they help to pry you away from the idea. I mean, Ken tells the story all the time, how he approached me, because most often than not, I would say, no. <laughs> and then and then I would immediately or overnight, I would always come back. I've been thinking about what you said. I think you may be right, or here's what I think, and let's go this way. I think producers don't understand that with the directors, too, though. They have to be that focused and tied to the material. But at the same time, you've got to be open enough that when somebody tells you this isn't working and gives you a germ of an idea that you go. I love telling the stories about Ken and I fighting through things. And we did on the book as well. We just would go at each other, hammer and tong, because we are so passionate about what we feel. And eventually, by that passion, we batter our way to the compromise, or maybe one's right, one's wrong. But it happens. A lot of people don't understand that. And when they would see that kind of creative tension, which I think is of the best sort, because it comes out of respect, because that's the way great shows get made. I'm not saying Grease is a great show, but it's incredibly successful. I discovered right away, very early, that one of Tom's characteristics was you have to give them overnight. One time, though, that you agreed right away, not easily, Uh was after our first preview. The original concept for the show was to have the band on stage in a platform above, behind a scrim of James Dean, so it could bleed through or not bleed through. Well, watching the first preview in which so much went wrong, it's like, what do you do? And one of the things that I always thought about after a first preview in front of a paying audience, that's when you really get the message. You have to figure out how to get everybody working again because it can be devastating. And I always think of it as a cluttered teenage room. You got to start by what? Picking up the first sock. So for me, after that night of disaster, the first sock that I thought should be picked up was the fact that it did not feel like a Broadway musical at all. Here we are in an 1,100-seat house, equivalent to the Broadhurst Theater on Broadway, and it just felt like this little show there. And I said to Tom afterwards, he was sitting by himself in a row. Everybody had sort of left. His agent had asked if I was going to fire him. I didn't tell Tom that. I said, why? I said, it's the first preview. So anyway, I go down. He's sitting there, and I said, Tom, I think the very first thing is we should move the band into the orchestra pit. He even had a full orchestra pit, just like Broadway. And he said, but it's part of the concept. It's part of our whole setup. I said, I know, but it's making the show look like a little off-Broadway musical. When actually, you know, we're going for a Broadway musical. So we're sitting there and then he says, we could try it, but I need you to promise that you will pay all the stagehands costs to move it right back up there if it doesn't work. I said, yes. And I knew I'd never have to pay for it. (laughs) We made the move and there was a difference right away. I mean, suddenly it was a Broadway show. 
And then, of course, we started picking up the rest of the room, and that wasn't so pleasant, but we did it. <laughs> so many of the things weren't so obvious. But again, it's just chinking away at just bit by bit. Ken calls it the sock. I, I feel like it's bricks in a building. You just keep adding one more brick, you know, and then you may have had a concept somewhere back along the way, but that's no longer relevant. You've gone through this three-week period of massive changes, really, and it's a fascinating part of the book, to opening night, and it's still in that age when you go to Sardi's after the show to wait for the reviews. So what was that like? These reviews come out, and they're mixed, but there's some fantastic reviews, there's some very negative. How did you approach that both as a director and a producer, especially in terms of how are you going to move on? The tradition was then that you have the opening night party at Sardi's, and then at a certain point, the producer, the writer, the director, director will go over to the advertising agency, which is across the street. Blaine Thompson was the major theater agency at the time. And they have a guy that they sort of pay a little bit under the table, like a janitor or somebody over at the New York Times, who will call at a certain point when the review is out. Not printed yet, but it's been done. And they will read it over the phone to the agency and, as I said, to the producer and the director. So that's what we did at a certain point. Now, we had already seen one really good review from NBC. On television. Though. Yeah, on television. The first review was Stuart Klein from WNET who panned it viciously. But so often when he panned a show viciously, everybody else seemed to like it. So we weren't totally turned off after that. And then came the NBC thing in which it mentioned it was the dancing show in town. No, no, run, don't walk to the Eden Theater. Dancing a show in town was somebody else. So we go over now, you know, I get Tom, I get Jim, I get Warren. We go over there. They have all these extension phones, you know, set up. So we sit there and we're listening. Now, the guy can barely speak English, and he's a monotone. The review was not terribly favorable, but it sounded like a horrible pan listening to it. So we finish, and we look at each other, and that's when Jim wants to beat the shit out of Clyde Barnes. And we have to go back to the party now. So the party's still going. I remember getting off the elevator and turning on that smile, greeting everybody in the cast, the ministers, everybody, you know, as if nothing had happened, as if we hadn't been anywhere. Right. Knowing that by 11 o'clock... Somebody was going to bring in the newspaper. And of course, they brought in the New York Times. Nothing will end a party faster than an unfavorable review in the New York Times. Suddenly, we went from celebration to funeral. And everybody started leaving. Because in those days, the New York Times review meant everything. People, you know, always said, look, it trashed the next day or they wrapped fish in it. Who remembers those reviews? It's not that. Also, you could argue that how many people actually saw it. Right. What happens is... The rest of the media, other newspapers, the syndicates, everybody turns you off after that. Nobody's interested. So you're not going to get calls from articles. You're not going to be in this magazine or that magazine. And you've got to spend a fortune in ads and other ways of trying to get the show to keep going and to get the press to be willing to do something. So that's what in those days used to create a flop when the New York Times didn't give you a really good review. So that's the situation we thought we were in. And traditionally what happens is that the next morning, everybody gathers at the ad agency, meaning the general manager, the attorney, Maxine and myself, our press person, of course, and we go over all the other reviews. Now, the general manager and my attorney were there not only just to represent the show and figure in their minds what we can do to keep going, they also are there to represent Maxine and I, who had already rung up about $20,000 in preview losses and other things that we'd be responsible for because the investors only pay what they pay. And anything over that, the producer is responsible for. Our lawyer, Joel Arn at the time, immediately said, you got to put the notice up because you got to stop this outflow of cash. That's the only way you can protect yourself because you can then close Saturday without any further debts. 
So Maxine and I look at each other, and I said, you know what? We can't afford to pay this 20000 right now, so we might as well not be able to afford to pay a lot more. Let's keep going. Because there was life at the box office. The pilot light was on. It was on because each week, even though we were still losing money, we were gaining. The gross was going up. So the word of mouth, which in the end is the reason why any show succeeds or doesn't, was working. So we went through the reviews, and we found a rave from the Daily News, Douglas Watt. Richard Watt in the New York Post had given us a horrible review. But the Daily News, that's where he said it's a dancing show in town. It was an out-and-out rave. So I said to Matthew Serino, who was head of Lane Thompson, went on to form his own agency, Serino Coin, which is now the dominant Broadway advertising agency. I said to him, Matthew, what if we repackaged Douglas Watt's review so that it looked just like Richard Watt's? Because, I mean, everybody mixed up the names. It looked just like the way they do his reviews. And we buy an ad on the theater page. He said, oh, they'd kill us. They would never let us do that. Then he said, wait, maybe if we got it in like five of six, because six the deadline, they wouldn't notice. They would just put it through. <laughs> it's worth a try. Let's do it. So they put the whole ad together, got over there by five of six. They didn't notice. They printed it the next day. And people were telling us, well, you got a rave in the post. They'd forgotten the other one. We did all kinds of little drops like that. We took a big full-page ad with quotes we had. I instructed my general manager's office, anybody who calls for house seats, we don't have any left. They're all gone. New York Magazine used to do hot ticket column every week. And after about three weeks of that, suddenly we picked up New York Magazine and said, one of the hottest tickets in town is Greece. Don't try to get house seats. There aren't any. So all these little drops of water. Now, what did they do? Why did it help? It helped because... The word of mouth was such that there were a lot of people who had been told to go see it. You got to keep reminding them that they want to go. That's what keeps it going. So all these little drops created an atmosphere around the show that I think helped galvanize uh, the box office. Because by the third week or so, we broke even and then started making some profits after that. It was one of those rough openings. It's really brilliant old school producing in a way that we just don't see anymore. Fantastic. In the manner of David Merrick. Exactly. Ken loved the whole history and story of David Merrick. And he would do these same kind of things. And we had some major clashes over Greece. Don't go away. It'll be Ken Wasteman versus David Merrick right after this short break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Factor as a sponsor to Broadway Nation this week. This spring, you can eat stress-free with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. You can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or my personal choice, Vegan and Veggie. You can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. 
If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code BN50 as in Broadway Nation, BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When we were moving uptown, we could only go to the Broadhurst for six months because they had already booked it for Neil Simon. Bernie Jacobs, I'm going about Schubert's, and certainly in my experience with all of them, is their word was their word. Because they might die or something, you had to have it in writing, but their word was their word. And Bernie had said, if we have to move you, and if we can't agree on a theater, you can go to another theater owner. And so when it came time, they only had one place to move us, and that was the Ambassador. The Ambassador was known as a jinx house back then. And it was far uptown. You didn't get any walk-in trade. Today you could. And also, it had no wing space on the right side of the theater, I think it was. We'd have to rebuild our scenery in order to make it work. So I said, no, that won't work. And Jimmy Niederlander had called, knowing what was going on. He said, would you want to take Reese into the Palace Theater? I said, I'll have to get back to you because I I'm meeting with Bernie today. So I told Bernie that. He said, you would go into that barn? I said, no, I don't want to go into that barn, but it's better than the ambassador. I said, what I want, because I just saw that the show is closing there, is the Royale. He said, well, Merrick wants the Royale for a new play he's doing. We, I didn't promise it to him. I told him I think about it, but he wants it. I said, then I guess I'll have to call Jimmy back. We had also taken him, because this was September, right around Labor Day. In those days, everybody on Broadway and shows coming in would take full-page ads mm-hmm. in that issue, Labor Day issue. So we had a full-page ad, see Grease, just for the fun of it, and the quotes and all of that. So I laid it down on his oak desk, which had belonged to J.J. Schubert, and he's looking at it, looks at me. He says, wait a minute. So he leaves. It seemed like an eternity. I'm sitting there, and then he comes back in. He pounds on that oak desk so hard I thought it was going to crack. Okay, you've got the Royale. This ad better bring in some good advance. It did more than he even anticipated. But Merrick went bananas. And so when we were doing over here, he decided to get back. We had three treadmills over here. Pete Feller, who built all the sets in those days up in his studio in the Bronx, had rented us two of the treadmills and he built another one for us. Uh, Merrick's carpenter happened to be there just when they were ready to move the set to Philadelphia, where we were going to try out. And he said, Pete, where'd you get these treadmills? Well, I had two of them here and I built a third one for them. And he said, no, those don't belong to you. They belong to David Merrick. From Subways are Sleeping, you were just storing them. Jack Schlissel calls my general manager. 
Eddie Davis. Jack Schlissel was David Merrick's legendary general manager. Eddie, how much are you going to pay Pete for those treadmills? He said, we're paying them $250 a week each. He said, calls back, Merrick doesn't want to rent them to you. He'll sell them for $25,000 for the two of them. Now, when you're at the end of the budget, you're going out of town. And today, that would be like asking uh, $250,000 or more. Right. So we had no choice, though. And wow. he said, okay, we'll do that. Jack Schlissel calls back. Merrick does not believe that that show is doing that well, and he doesn't trust Ken. So he wants a certified check from a bank. That's a real insult. Again, we had no choice. We gave him the certified check. Now, over here, it looks like it's a hit. We got great reviews. And we're doing great. We were doing business. But Sugar, the musical that he had just opened down the street, was not doing business at all. Eddie Davis gets a call from Jack Schnitzel. Merrick would like to know if in your inner lobby, that's where, you know, people go after they bought their ticket. In your inner lobby, could we put up a sandwich board promoting Sugar? And we'll do the same for over here in our theater. So Eddie calls me. He says, Jack Schlissel called. This is what he's asking. I said, tell him we'll do it for $26,000. <laughs> Jack Schlissel calls Eddie back. Merrick wants to know why 26 because Ken's entitled to a profit, he thinks. So, of course, they didn't do it. That was that. Now, the sign on 45th Street, the sign right there in the middle between the Broadhurst and the Imperial becomes available. It's right across the street from Merrick's office. When he looks out his window, he sees that sign, which is now blank. I run over to Bernie Jacobs. We want to rent that sign for Greece. So we paint this huge Greece sign there, you know. Pat Birch in Schubert Alley runs into David Merrick's infamous secretary. Today we call her assistant, they call her secretary. And they actually had gone to school together, so they knew each other. And she said to Pat, Merrick is beside himself. He's screaming that he can't look out the window without seeing that goddamn grease. <laughs> now we have an emergency meeting at the League because Lawrence Schubert Lawrence, the heir to the Schubert organization, was planning to sell off the theaters on 44th and 45th Street. He was a complete drunk. And half the time they couldn't find him because it was in some bar. So this is an emergency meeting. Bernie Jacobs and Jerry Schoenfeld, who had been the attorneys, going back to the real Schubert's, are doing a mutiny. So they have a meeting of the entire Broadway League of uh, Theater Producers and Owners. And Merrick was not a member out of his arrogance or whatever, but he came to that. And everybody agreed to back Bernie and Jerry, because it was going to be a big lawsuit, and save the theaters. I get on the elevator afterwards, and just as the elevator doors are shutting, we were like on the uh, third floor of the parties, uh, Merrick gets on. I said, hello, Mr. Merrick. And as we start to descend, he said, hello. He said, you're going to get a call from the Wall Street Journal. He says, yeah, they're doing an article on producing. And of course, they wanted me, the old veteran. He said, but they asked me, you know, who's the youngest producer? And should I interview him or her? And I said, you were. And I told him to contact you. So you're going to get a call. We were friends after that. Wow. From that moment on. He eventually came to see Greece, And he said, it's a really good show. And then afterwards, he said, it's a good thing I didn't get to Chicago before you did. I said, you wouldn't have known what to do with it. I said, you're right. That's amazing. I love all that. Before I let you go today, I want to ask, we always hear about the performance of A Chorus Line when it broke the record of the longest running show on Broadway, but I didn't know about the event that you had for Greece, which also sounds like an amazing evening to have been there. And the way you orchestrated that was really phenomenal. Describe that for us. You knew this event was coming up and how did you come up with the plan of we're going to be become the longest running show in Broadway history, which had to be mind boggling to begin with. Suddenly we realized that this coming year, if we keep running, we're going to beat Fiddler on the Roof. And that was the longest running player musical show in Broadway history since Hello Dolly. And before that, 
It was a play from the early 40s, the one about the Irish girl and the Jewish... A.B.'s Irish Rose. A.B.'s Irish Rose. Those are three incredible, legendary, iconic Broadway history events, and we're going to surpass them all. Betty Lee Hunt, our press agent, and Maria Pucci, who was our press agent partner, we started talking about it. And I remember going to the event when Fiddler became the longest-running show in history. So I remember Merrick from Hello, Dolly, and a couple of those people that were there. And Jerry Herman handed off like a winning thing, you know, to the Fiddler people. And so Bach and Harnick. Yes, Bach and Harnick. So I said, we've got to do something. I mean, look what they did. And so we decided to get a party planner involved. And so we hired a party planner who started planning the whole thing. And he said, listen, we'll um, have that whole ceremony that you're talking about at the theater. We'll do all of that. And then somewhere in, came up with the idea that the original cast needs to play that night. And the first national cast. So we said the originals will play the first act and the national cast will play the second or in reverse. Vice versa, yeah. And I said, but most of them are out in L.A. now, working out there. It was decided that we would talk to Pan Am and see if we couldn't get a grease plane with grease painted on the plane to fly the kids in and take them back, all the people from L.A. And we would rehearse both casts out in L.A., sending the New York people out there who lived here. And so all of that, you know, we planned and, and we decided we would get two ballrooms at the Americana Hotel. And then we talked about we would need a band. We got Fats Domino. And then we had another band in the other ballroom. And it was an all-night affair. We had all these buttons printed, big yellow buttons that said, I went the distance with Greece. And if you stayed till the end of the evening, which was in the morning, you got a button. John Travolta, he couldn't be in the cast of the set because he was shooting something, but going to be there, of course. Let's just say the truth here. He wouldn't have wanted to do because, of course, it's a different part and it hardly fit the two. Oh, right. <laughs> I guess that was behind it. But, but he was very gracious to offer as the substitute support. Right, but he was there, and also we invited. So the movie had opened already, and John Travolta was a giant star. Well, actually, Saturday Night Fever made him a giant star immediately. And Reese came afterwards, which benefited us because already he was a big star when the movie opened. But anyway, yes, he came, and we invited Olivia John, and she came. An event. All these people were on the plane. As a matter of fact. When we got on the plane, John's a pilot. He flies planes, so he immediately, it's a big 747, he sits down where the pilot seat was. As we're all getting on, pilot gets on, or one of the security people get on, and he says, you, points his finger at John, out of there! <laughs> it was a great event. We put a lot of work and effort into it because this was a monumental thing. Come the longest oh, running player musical in Broadway history. You know, there were many people who were quite thrilled when Chorus Line overtook us because they never thought Greece should have had that mantle, which I kind of laugh about. But it was one of those nights for an awful lot of people, especially the creative team and all of us. At the time, it was one of the greatest moments of your life. We were still quite young. I mean, we're still very much in our mid-30s. It was something. One of my favorite things in the book is the picture of me addressing the audience there that night because I remember it. I can recall that feeling of being surrounded by all those people that had not only been creative collaborators, but had become friends by that time and feeling the extraordinary joy of the evening from everybody. And that's what we're about to try to create to a certain extent. We can't do it on a stage because we're 50 years old. But that's what we'll be doing for our 50th anniversary at Sardis. That's coming up. What's the plan? Yeah, that's uh, June 5th, Sunday night, June 5th. And we've been having reunions over the years. One thing about having, you know, all the characters in the show, the actors playing them in the same age range, and also everybody having their moment being an ensemble, it's become like family. There are friends, people who speak to each other all the time, every day. And we get together every once in a while. We've had reunions over the years all the time. In the last two years, we've done several Zoom reunions. And just great, everybody together 
it feels like yesterday when you start talking, you know. We decided we need a big reunion celebration live for the 50th anniversary. It's going to be Monday. And then, of course, June 7th, which is two days later, Greece, Tell Me More, Tell Me More, the book is released. Anybody that wants to read it can find it. June 7th is the release date. It's going to be an exciting party. I mean, available on pre sale from Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Yes, that's true. Greece, Tell Me More, Tell Me More. The party should be a lot of fun. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being my guest today on Broadway Nation. It's been great to talk to you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for your enthusiasm. Oh, my pleasure. Great talking with you. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Factor as a sponsor to Broadway Nation this week. This spring, you can eat stress-free with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. You can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or my personal choice, Vegan and Veggie. You can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code BN50, as in Broadway Nation, BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now! And that's not the end of the celebration, at least as far as Broadway Nation is concerned, because next week I'll be back with a delightful, hilarious conversation with two of the stars that Grease made famous, Mary Lou Henner and Barry Bostwick. Sandy, come on, get back in the car! I'm sorry, Danny. Just because you give me your ring doesn't mean we're going to go all the way. I think maybe we better just forget about it. Goodbye, Danny. Hey, Sandy! Where are you going? You just can't walk out of a drive-in! Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. I'm all alone.
Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode. At the drive-in movie. To KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington. Feeling that ain't too groovy. And to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. At the Passion Pit, wanting you. the clock's hands while he's eating everything sold at the stand when there's one minute to go till the lights go down low I'll be holding the speaker knobs missing you so can't believe If you enjoy this podcast, I have one request. On whatever platform you use to listen, please follow, subscribe, rate, and review the show. It's extremely helpful in spreading the word to other Broadway fans who may be interested in Broadway Nation. Cause the heater doesn't work as good as you. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Jumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Jumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.